Welcome back to our next episode on the Vocation Series. Father McFarland, how has your week been? Uh, fine so far. Good. It's always good to hear. Uh, I, I will say, if you can just get one task accomplished during the day, just one, that's enough. <laughs> and then just deal with everything else that just kind of falls on your plate. It's better than some of my days. Yeah, fair enough. We got something done today. Oh, good. And then hopefully by the end of this recording, we'll have two things done. Two things. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. Well, this week, Father, we are looking at the religious life. Last week, we looked at the vocation to the priesthood, what that entails. And then today, we're going to be doing sort of the same thing, but just looking at it from the perspective of the religious life. So where should we start? Maybe I asked the question, is there such a thing as a vocation, so to speak, to the religious life? Maybe you want to answer that a little bit later on, but where would you like to begin? Well, the short answer to that is uh, kind of depends what you mean. Uh, and we will, okay. we'll get to that a bit later on. Uh, I think the first thing, and I, it's something I think I've mentioned before, but the the priesthood and religious life are different things. So it's not, uh, again, I think, as I've said before, it's not as if the umbrella is religious life and all of those who are consecrated to God are, are religious. And in that you have priests and nuns and brothers uh, religious or something dis- distinctly separate from the from the priesthood you can be a priest and a religious at the same time but a priest is not necessarily a religious so i am a priest i'm not a religious i do not take the, the three vows of religion which constitute the um the essence of uh, of the religious state so we'll explain that uh, as we go on uh so of course god wills that all men follow the commandments attain the salvation of their soul um but he wants others to to live a more perfect life to to follow our Lord Jesus Christ more closely. Um, and they do so by, by living what we call the evangelical councils, um, which are poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, and so the purpose of the religious life is primarily this, this consecration to God by the, the three vows that correspond to the evangelical councils, the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. So this one binds oneself to observe the councils and adds the merit of the virtue of religion to all the acts done under these councils. So, you know, the, your average person, um, you know, sweeps the floor. Okay. He's, he's performed a, you know, it's his duty. He's performed a a good act. Um, the religious sweeps the floor, right? He's, he's done his duty, but he's under the, the virtue of obedience as a religious. That means it's, it is both an act of, of, of obedience and, uh, in the accomplishment of his duty and an act of the virtue of religion. So it adds that, that merit to, to everything he does according to, to his vows. Uh, and the, the 1917 code of Canon law defines the religious state as the, the firmly established manner of living in community by which the faithful undertake to observe not only the ordinary precepts, but also the evangelical councils by means of the vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty. So it is, it's a stable mode of life. Uh, if we were talking about states of life, that the idea of permanency uh, is is implied. Um, so entering into the religious state definitively by final profession, one is no longer free to, to give it up. Um, and then there's the living in community. Uh, so membership in community, that's not just living in the same house, but under a determined superior with a definite rule. And this belongs to the essence of religious life. In general, that means dwelling under a common roof with others uh, who belong to the same religious society, although not necessarily. Um, it, you know, there are hermits who are religious. There are uh, bishops who used to be, relig- you know, were members of religious communities, no longer living with their community, but are still religious. 
And then there's the observance of the evangelical councils. You know, religious state is, a, we say, a state of perfection. Not that those in religion are automatically perfect, but that they are pursuing perfection by the means of observing these councils. Right. Uh, and then that is by the means of, of the vows in, in that correspond to the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience. So this is this is definitely a, a set apart state in life. It's different from the laity. It's different from you as a as a secular priest. I guess the term would be. Um, what about and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. So just tell me to shut up if so. But what about we see sometimes there are cardinals or bishops who are Franciscans or right. you know, belong to a certain order. Are they still under this same set of yes. rules and obligations? Right. They, so they still belong to their religious congregation. Their episcopacy uh, then would, would take precedence. That is, they have responsibilities that they, they owe to that, that role where they can't fulfill the ordinary life of one of those religious, but generally they'll, they'll still wear their habit with the pontifical regalia over the, the, uh, the habit, you know, the pectoral cross, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and they will still have, you know, to, you know, even, even in their, um, their fiscal role to live out the, the spirit of those, uh, of the constitutions, uh, of their, their order and stuff. And they remain members thereof too, even though they have, uh, been advanced to the, the Episcopal dignity. Okay. You talked about the, by means of the vows, this is how they're having this stability of life. This is how, this is their means of perfection. <laughs> um, let's go through those, those vows, father. The first one, I guess is poverty. Usually we, yeah, we usually, we list them in the order of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Okay. Um, so you have the this threefold uh, concupiscence that that Saint John talks about the uh, the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the the pride of life, and the the vows combat that threefold concupiscence. So this poverty is against concupiscence of the eyes, right? freeing the soul from concerns pertaining to material things uh, that it may grow closer to God. So as our Lord says, if thou wilt be perfect. Go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. So this is where he is counseling the evangelical councils, the counsels, the advice given in the gospels by our Lord Jesus Christ. He's advising them, to, you know, people to sell what they have to uh, separate themselves from these material concerns. And that means, you know, it doesn't mean poverty in the sense of absolute destitution and you know, religious aren't starving to death or, um, you know, or the like. It means that the religious owns nothing as, as belonging properly to himself. So he renounces his external goods, uh, present and future. Things, of course, are still used even more or less exclusively. You know, it's not like religious or sharing toothbrushes or underwear, but those things don't, those things don't belong to them. You know, the superior can say, uh, you need a new toothbrush, throw that one out. Um, uh, he, the, the superior has that, that authority and the, the, you know, the religious can't say, but it's mine. No, it's not yours, right? It's for your use, even though it doesn't uh, really belong to you. And a community's poverty can, can be practiced in varying degrees, uh, you know, in the sense that uh, there are religious orders, congregations, monasteries, et cetera, that have had extensive properties, uh, things that are very valuable, you know, liturgical furnishings, chalices, monstrances, saboria, um, works of art, lands, um, uh, buildings, etc., 
Um, although they are still meant to be living within those buildings you know, in the spirit of poverty, they shouldn't be, you know, have, have cells that are lavishly decorated and so on. Um, but, uh, and then others, most notably the, the Franciscans and particularly the Capuchins, the strictest observance of, of the Franciscan rule, uh, their community is, is very poor. So they have, you know, poorer buildings and, um, much less in the way of, of, of art, liturgical furnishings, et cetera. Sure. I remember, I don't, I don't know if you told me this, this anecdote father or someone else, um, there was a, there was a Benedictine who was using a shovel and it was his favorite shovel. Cause it was the yeah. one that he liked and had certain things. And, um, someone else took it one day and was using it and he goes, no, 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 that's my shovel. And the superior found out about it and said, you are never to use that shovel again. Right. Because and he was getting too attached to that one thing and called it mine. Right. And as, as we can, you know, we can do with all kinds of things we get inordinately attached and the idea. Part of the idea behind the 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 vow of poverty is that we do not get inordinately attached to to the things of this world. So you know, in in uh, in certain religion congregations, they'll you know every year they'll switch watches or they'll they'll mm. change they'll change rooms. So to do these things to to avoid um, you know thinking of things as belonging to themselves, and of course material goods, you know, as we know, as our Lord tells us frequently, that can be a, a hindrance to the spiritual life. If we become attached, which is easy to do, our, our nature clings to these things. Um, and so, so poverty helps us to overcome this, this inordinate love of, of the things of this world and the cares associated with the administration of temporal goods. You know, if you're, uh, if you're religious, you don't have to worry about doing your taxes because you don't, you don't have any income at all. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that frees you from a lot of, uh, a lot of worry and uh, about the IRS showing up at your door, et cetera. <laughs> And, uh, and of course, it, you know, the, the, the vow of poverty imposes sacrifices. There's, there's much less independence. Can't just decide, well, I, I need something. So I'm going to go get it. You have to ask the superior. I have, I need, you know, uh, a new pair of shoes. Can I get a new pair of shoes? And if it says, no, find something around the monastery. That's what you have to do. Um, and there's that, uh, humiliation of, of constant recourse to, to one superior, this, this humbling of oneself and often to the generosity of others to, to, uh, be asking for the, the faithful to, to support you and, and, uh, in the living of your life. Um, and of course we know that the, that earthly goods cannot, cannot satisfy us. Nevertheless, many of our, our aspirations are our most cherished aspirations are strictly material. We want to have a certain amount of money. We want to drive a certain car. We want a, a specific kind or size of house, you know, et cetera. And, um, you know, this, this helps us to put all that in the right perspective and you know, everything that we use belongs to God anyway. We're not taking anything with us when we die. And so the religious sets it all aside in order to, to focus his intention solely on God. Right. It's, it's more of an extreme version of what laity and, uh, priests like yourself should be following anyway. Right. We're, we're all meant to practice the virtue of, of poverty. And even if we don't have the vow, we should, you know, right. we shouldn't be living, uh, luxurious lives. Even if we, you know, if we have the, the, uh, the financial means to, to live more luxuriously, we ought to, you know, provide for our, our needs and for living decently, and then use the, the, the rest of that money for the accomplishment of good works for the glory of God. Right. The next vow that the religious take is one of chastity. And again, same sort of thing. All of us are called to live chastely according to our state of life. What does, what do the religious uh, promise particularly? Right. So of course, everyone's obliged to be chaste. Most of your sins of unchastity are mortal sins. Um, but this to more, to more effectively fight against the concupiscence of the flesh, the, 
the the religious renounces permanently the marriage and the possibility of marriage. So as our Lord tells to his um, apostles, and when they ask if it's expedient not to marry, he says, all men take not this word, but them to, to whom it is given. He that can take it, let him take it. Um, and so he's recommending, if you can do this, it's, it's the better way to go. Uh, so the vow is of, of perfect chastity. So um, the complete renouncement of marriage and all privileges associated to it. Uh, with it. And when it's freed by this vow from the, the, the worries and cares for the, uh, of family life, you know, St. Paul says he that is without a wife is solicitous for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please God. But he that is with a wife is solicitous for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he's divided. And that's not necessarily the case, uh, but very often it is. And so mm-hmm. to, to set aside that, that again, that concern, the, the difficulties, the, the distractions, et cetera, of, of family life, of marriage. And, and again, to not, not that they're bad things, um, certainly not they're good and willed by God, but there's something higher, right? To, to have that, that total focus, that total dedication to God is what our Lord Jesus Christ recommends for the best way to, to save one soul, to sanctify one soul. And of course the, the vow, you know, it doesn't, uh, take away all, uh, concupiscence like that. You know, it's a, there is still that effort that has to be made on the part of the religious to, to be chased, to, um, to watch, to pray, to mortify his senses, his curiosity, to avoid idleness, etc. But of course in the religious state, there are many graces granted, um, to help him to be triumphant in that, that battle against the flesh. Okay. And all that contributing to a spirit of self-denial of, of self-mastery for the love of God contributing to, to this growth and holiness and, and the salvation of one soul. All right. It's beautiful. Uh, next. And finally, what is, what, what do the religious vows uh, entail in terms of obedience? So obedience is uh, meant to, to overcome the, the, what St. John calls the, the pride of life. So, and our Lord recommends it when he says to the, to the rich young man, come follow me. Um, and so we, you know, and by nature, we more than, than even to pleasures of the flesh or to material things, we cling to our own will. And in order to submit our, ourselves more perfectly to God, right, we can take the religious vow and right? so submitting our will completely to human superiors. So the religious pledges to obey the commands of the lawful superiors in all things that pertain to the vows and constitutions of his order or congregation. So that's concerned with formal commands, not just advice. He's not required to take the advice of his superiors if it is just advice. Uh, and it's important to note that a, peri- a superior's power is not absolute. He's limited to the, the various points of the rule and whatever relates to the fulfillment of duties and to fair and efficient administration of the, the religious house or the religious congregation. And that's actually quite broad. That covers a lot of things. Um, and all of us are, of course, obliged to obey our superiors. Um, but the religious turns over the whole of his external life to his superiors. So where he lives, he can't just, you know, decide that he's going to move or if he's told that he needs to move, he just has to go. Um, what kind of work he does. And, uh, you know, you, you find this at times in, and, uh, as you read the lives of saints or other religious, they, you know, a very qualified theologian, for example, may be sent to teach catechism to children or to, to be a, a mission to, um, to pagans in a, in a very rough environment. Um, 
et cetera. You know, so it's not, not according to one's inclination or even to one's natural gifts maybe, but to, to the will of the superiors. Um, what the, what the religious eats, what he does for recreation, uh, if he can have uh, extra rest, you know, all these things dependent upon the, the wills of, will of the superior. And this is the hardest of the vows to practice, uh, because we are so attached to, to our own will, even very much in our exercises of piety, it happens, you know, we, we have those things that we like to do and those other things that we don't like to do. And, and here the religious submits all of that to, to his superiors. Right, which requires humility, patience, meekness, right? mortifying that tendency to, to criticize superiors, to, to prefer his own judgment, to follow his own likes and whims. Um, and these are, you know, some of the most difficult virtues to, to practice and um, overcoming the, the evil tendencies and, and seeing God in the superiors already a strong movement towards perfection, right? cultivating some of the, the most excellent virtues in the practice of this vow. And so true obedience is, it's one of the best proofs of love. Practicing is a great means of growing in charity, which is, which is holiness. Is this, um, you know, critics of Catholicism in general, but maybe more specifically of what we're talking about would say, well, this is just a means of control of the church, trying to control individuals, et cetera. Um, is it, is it that I know, I know what the answer is, but, or is it more, um, trying to get us to, understand that if we can obey a person here on earth, it's going to help us to follow the will of God. It's, it's sort of that stepping stone to obedience and accepting the will of God. Is that the case? Right. Well, how does God make his will known to us you know, through his commandments, mm-hmm. certainly through the councils, uh, through circumstances in our life, but through the commands of our superiors, now all power on earth is from God. And so this to, to more closely follow the will of God, the religious is submitting himself more perfectly to these, these human superiors, right? Who are helping him to, to seek after God. That's, that's the whole point of, of the religious life. That's why he enters into it. And that's what, uh, at least ideally, and most of the time, I think to be the case that that's what the superior is seeking after too. And so it's going to, to, uh, um, to be helping him to, to reach that goal. We've talked broadly about what the religious life is. It's taking these vows, it's living in common, et cetera. And then we've talked about the vows. Now let's talk a little bit about who or, or, or what you need to be or what kind of person you need to be in order to uh, enter into the religious state. So who can join? Right. So like with the priesthood, we'll talk about what's required uh, for valid admission to the religious state and then what's required for, for licit admission. So here. Okay. Firstly, if it's if these requirements for valid admission are are missing, that means that the vows of religion are simply null and void. They don't. Okay. They're the that consecration as a religious has not in fact taken place. Uh, so the first requirement, very difficult. Uh, one must be Catholic. You can't be a religious if you're not Catholic first. Um, okay. If you're not Catholic and you want to be religious, it's pretty easy to solve that one. You just go become Catholic and then. So of course, those who are converts are, are, are permitted, you know, they have become Catholic. Anyone who's, who's not at all Catholic has never been Catholic is, would be excluded as would those who have made an act of formal apostasy, uh, from the face. Okay. Uh, and then also one must be free from, from legal impediment for, uh, to enter validly enter the religious state. So what does that mean? Uh, that means you can't be entering a religious life under 
uh, duress, grave fear, or deceit. So if you've been tricked or threatened into entering religious life, your uh, vows would be null and void. Likewise, if the superior who accepts you has been threatened or deceived in order to accept you, then uh, your vows would be null and void. So, you know, if, uh, if, uh, say a, a father really wanted his son to be a monk and he went to the, uh, abbot of the monastery and said, I'm going to kill you if you don't accept my son. And the, uh, the, the abbot says, sure, we'll take him. Uh, <laughs> that wouldn't be valid. Likewise, okay. if he tells his son, I'm going to kill you if you don't become a monk, uh, then it, it would be null and void. Same thing. So, uh, doesn't happen too often these days, but if it's in canon law, um, it, it used yeah. to happen. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of like having enough for them to make a rule about it. I was just going to say, you, you don't, you haven't actually officially graduated high school unless you have something in the student handbook that's made because of you. Right. Same sort of thing here. Um, it probably right. happened. It sounds very medieval. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then those still bound in matrimony, of course, uh, they have to fulfill their matrimonial duties. So, um, but widows, widowers, those who have had marriages declared null, they can enter religion. That's, that is, uh, you know, permissible. Also, it, it has happened just to point out in history, it's pretty rare, but it can occur that, that spouses, um, decide to, to separate and generally to each one to enter religious life. And of course they'd have to, you know, usually after they're, uh, they haven't had children or their children are, are grown out of the house or some other means of providing for them has been, has been taken. Um, but that's, that's not something that happens very often. Um, also, so those who have been professed in another religious Institute, uh, they have to have that dispensed. Um, that this is, has been a problem in the past of, uh, you know, there were, uh, the, the gyrovag monks in the old days who would just get tired of whatever monastery they were at and go bounce to another one. And when that got old bounce to another one, it, um, caused all sorts of problems for, for discipline, et cetera. Um, and those, those in danger of being punished for a grave crime. So it's not just a matter of having committed a grave crime, but if you're, you know, in real risk of, of going to jail or being executed or the like, um, for a serious crime, homicide, larceny, or the past adultery, um, then you can't enter religion because you see the danger there. That is, well, I'll hide out from the law in religious right. life. And that's what they're trying to avoid. So if you've, you know, you lived a life of, of crime for some 10 years, you reformed yourself and you wanted to enter a monastery to do penance and the monastery was willing to accept you, you could certainly do that. Um, but not if there's, if you've already been accused or arrested or, there's good reason to think that you soon will be, uh, accused, arrested, et cetera. Okay. okay. And that's for valid admission. That's really it. A religious life is, is pretty, pretty easy, uh, for it to, uh, to occur validly. Okay. Um, and then we move on to what's required for, for licit lawful admission to the religious state. Again, it's, there's not a whole lot. Um, the religious life is much more open than the priesthood. Right. The priesthood, there are stricter requirements because you have to have a certain academic ability. There's certain things that you have to learn because you have this responsibility for, uh, for souls. And a religious doesn't necessarily have that. If he's a religious and a priest, he, he will. Um, but if not, you know, there are, you have those, those religious who are, uh, you know, brilliant preachers, orators, scholars, etc. Um, and you have those who are, uh, 
you know, humble farmers, manual laborers, et cetera. And there's, there's a place for all of them in, in religious life. Um, so there, there aren't the requirements in themselves are not as strict for entering religious life. That being said, different religious congregations have their own requirements. So okay. you may, you may be able to enter, um, religious life in the abstract, but then you also have to find a congregation that's willing to take you. Um, and they, they're permitted because of their own special work conditions of their life, et cetera, to have their own requirements. Okay. So the first thing, uh, as for the priesthood, there has to be that right intention, that supernatural intention doesn't need to be 100% pure, absolutely perfect. Uh, but there does have to be that desire to, to glorify God, to save one's soul, to work for the salvation of other souls, etc. Um, something that is truly supernatural entering, pursuing this way of life for the right reason, not, you know, not to have an easy life, not to have three square meals a day, not to escape from the law, you know, but, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, and there has to be a capability of observing the rule and constitutions. So that would exclude those who are, who are infirm and, you know, sick and or weak in whatever way and incapable of practicing the, the requisite austerity for that congregation which you know, again can vary greatly. So in congregations that are affiliated with us, uh, you know, the Carmelites, for example, have fairly uh, strict regulations in regard to health um, because they can't make much accommodation in their way of life for, for other things. Um, there's a congregation affiliated with the society in France, little handmaids of St. John the Baptist. They will actually take sick candidates. Um, hmm. I heard of them taking a candidate who was, uh, had multiple sclerosis and was in a wheelchair. Um, so, but they're a nursing order. So they, they're much more equipped to handle that. So it depends on the congregation, but even they could have, you know, certain limits to, to, uh, to what they're able to deal with. Um, in the mentally ill, uh, something we talked about with the priesthood, um, you know, serious mental illness is going to be a bar to, to, uh, to really being able to, um, uh, live religious life. Uh, it can be so bad if you're, you know, if you just have no awareness of where you are or you're so, uh, you know, lacking in intelligence that, you know, that you're unable to understand the obligations of religious life, then that wouldn't even be valid. Uh, but if it's, a, uh, um, you know, if it's something not, not that serious, it would still generally be illicit unless it's a question of something quite minor. Can I, can I interject real quick mm -hmm. on that note, father, uh, both on the priesthood, what we talked about last time and on this, uh, let's say someone is suffering from bipolar. Mm -hmm. disorder. Uh, medication nowadays is pretty good. You can have that under control. If someone is on medication and continues to take it, could they be admitted either into the priesthood or the religious life? Uh, I mean, I know it's going to be dependent on a lot of different things, but right. broadly. So I, I think in general, uh, most congregations, the Society of St. Pius X included, would, uh, would not accept the candidate under those conditions because there are, um, you know, with a serious mental problem like bipolar disorder, you're, um, there, are, there are a lot of, of risks there, um, as far as the, the community life and, uh, you know, dealing with souls and so on. And, and, um, you know, if responsibilities are on that person and, and he has a turn for the worse or the medication stops working like it should, there's, there's quite a bit of danger there. Okay. Fair enough. So sorry to interrupt in, you. Right. In theory, in theory, uh, with it under control, a, a religious congregation could, I okay. personally know of a religious congregation that would. Okay. And I think, you know, and I think that's, that is in fact reasonable. One feels for those who, 
are in that situation who would like to enter religious life, but it's just um, too many difficulties, too many risks. Sure. Uh, so we say those who have have passionate tendencies, you know, so strong, such or such deeply rooted habits of vice as to doubt the capacity for reform should not enter religious life because, you know, in particular, we're talking about matters of purity. If they're already, you know, committing frequent sins against uh, the virtue of purity, then adding that the obligation, the further obligation of the vow of chastity is just going to make it worse. Um, that is, they're, they're taking on a new responsibility. Those sins become graver um, because of their, mm. their, their new obligations. And that's not a situation that you want to put them in. If they've shown that they can, that they've overcome it, then that's a different story. Then they can be sure. admitted to religious life. But even there, some congregations are very hesitant uh, to take those people who have had those habits, um, particularly for, for an extended period of time, um, because of the danger uh, of relapse and the like. Okay. Um, those who are burdened with debts are also for the time those debts remain, cannot enter religious life. It's not a place to hide from your creditors. And the religious congregations are not, I mean, it would certainly spike recruitment, but uh, they're not looking, <laughs> not looking to pay off your debts for you. Uh, <laughs> you've got to take care of that yourself before entering religious life. Okay. Um, if you have duties of administration, um, you know, like you're the executor of an, uh, of an estate, something like that, think, especially things that could embroil you in litigation, for the time that you remain holding on to that, you have to put off entering into religious life. If you can hand that off to somebody else or tie up those obligations, then you can enter. Not a problem. Um, so filial duties, and here we're talking about parents or grandparents strictly require your support. That's not my parents are going to miss me or, um, you know, it'll be kind of tough for them or everyone was thinking that I was going to be the one to take care of them. I, I mean, I have 10 other siblings, but no, if, if you're their only means of support, you know, your parents or grandparents are going to be out on the street or starving to death or otherwise in, in dire circumstances, then, then you should attend to that, um, for as long as that, that, uh, that risk remains either until they pass away or until, um, you're able to, to provide for, for them some other way. Okay. Likewise, family obligations. If you have, you know, if you're a widower, say, um, and you have children that uh, that need to be taken care of. You can't just ditch them and enter religious life. Once they're once they're they're grown up, then you you could look to do that. We have a this fascinating story. Uh, a, a religious brother of the society um, who was a uh, he was a soldier in the Second World War. He was taken prisoner. He escaped from the prison camp, made his way back home to France. Uh, so he's married, had a, if I want to say nine children. Um, his, his wife died when he was about 60 years old. Um, and then after a couple of years, he went on a retreat and decided he was going to be a religious brother, uh, became a brother of the society, lived another 40 years as a, a, uh, a brother of the society who was snatched from us at the age of 102, um, wow. having, you know, nearly 40 years, maybe about 40 years of religious life to his credit, as well as over a uh, hundred descendants that he lived to see. So I, you know, so those things uh, can happen, uh, uh, unusual certainly, but but not impossible. Um, also, just in general, if uh, if one has belongs to a, a Latin rite, one has to join Latin rite congregations. You know, in the church we have the Eastern rites as well. 
Um, and if one wanted to join an Eastern Rite, one would need a dispensation for that and the other way around also. And someone belonging to an Easter Rite, Eastern Rite would have to be dispensed before joining a Latin Rite congregation. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's about it in general. Um, and again, those are in general, other, uh, congregations are, um, have their own rules. I think particularly the female congregations seem to have, uh, quite a few requirements. Um, there's a lot of overlap, but there are some that are particular to, to each one. Another, something we mentioned in regard to the priesthood that does uh, come up at times too for, uh, um, for religious, uh, the matter of having participated in an abortion, um, there, uh, most religious congregations of women are, are very hesitant to accept someone that's particularly if the candidate herself has had an abortion, uh, um, because it's, and it's not just the fact of the, of the past crime, but uh, the effect that it has on, on her psyche and even on hormones and things like that. Uh, likewise, most of them are hesitant if there has been extended cohabitation. So if one has, if a, a candidate has lived with a, with a man, uh, not married, uh, for any length of time, they're hesitant to, uh, usually hesitant to take those candidates. Again, again, it has an effect on their, their, their psychology, their outlook on life, um, and even physical things in, uh, within them. Okay. So we've, we've talked about briefly, we've talked about the, you know, the vocation, this calling that, that is often misunderstood. Um, and again, can we say that there is a vocation to the religious life? How do, how does one know if they are called to, to this life? Uh, we can say all kinds of things as long as we explain them. <laughs> and that's, and we usually do, we, we say vocation to the religious life. Um, and so you have, you know, if we want to understand it properly, I think if, uh, you know, want to hear my rants against the, uh, the dumb things that people say, go back to the introduction, the introduction that, uh, we gave him to this, this, uh, this podcast series. But so the, the, this, there is an objective vocation and that is given by our Lord Jesus Christ. When he counsels the religious life, when he says, if that will be perfect, go sell what thou hast and give to the poor and come follow me. And again, when he says, speaking of, of giving up marriage, he that can take it, let him take it. Um, what's his, his, his condition for selling everything and following him more closely is if that will be perfect. So, but he's making this it, opening it to all, right? So anyone who wants to, if you have this desire to, to be more perfect, to follow me more closely, here it is. Here's the way. And, okay. um, the fathers of the church are unanimous and all of them who talk about the religious life speak about it in this way. It's open to those who wish to embrace it. Uh, and that, you know, again, you have to find a congregation that will take you. Um, but you can even live the life of the councils in the world. Um, sure. and, and that is, uh, that is something that exists. We should maybe do a, maybe do a podcast on the single life at some point. Um, yeah. there's plenty of misunderstandings in regard to that too. Uh, but so in itself open to all. And when he says he that can take it, let him take it. The, the fathers say those that can take it are those who ask for the grace to be able to take it. Uh, I mean, it can happen that, you know, um, someone has such deeply rooted bad habits of, of, uh, of impurity that he, he really can't take it, but that's, that's going to be the exception. Um, and I think St. John Chrysostom in particular is saying, you ask for the grace, ask for the grace to, to be chaste and, and, and God will grant it to you. Um, and so that's the, that's the objective side of it made to everyone. And that's again, 
everyone. Only requirement, if that will be perfect. And then what we might call the subjective vocation, which is the reception of the call in the individual. So it does depend on the person, the fitness of that person for the, the, this state of life and for the congregation that he's trying to enter. And that's a, that fitness is both natural and supernatural. Uh, you know, you have to have their sufficient health, et cetera. And then of course, grace, right? That if, if, if one's not moved by grace, one's not even going to consider it. So, um, but St. Thomas Aquinas doesn't, you know, in the Summa Theologica, where he speaks about uh, a vocation to the religious life, he doesn't use the word vocation. Uh, he has very different ideas on the subject than are, are popular these days. St. Thomas writes about the propositum religionis, um, this, this, the proposition of, of religion, the, the will to enter religious life, right? an intense act of, of the virtue of religion, an act of devotion, of this dedication of self by means of the vows. So it's influenced also by the virtue of magnanimity, that which tends to, to do great and difficult things that wants to do the hard thing for God. Um, and it's this virtue of magnanimity perf performs acts, not of, of precept, not those things that everybody has to do, but of counsel, the things that our Lord says are better. Like the magnanimous person says, I want to do that. Right. And so, um, with that and the virtue of religion, desiring to make this offering of self that moved by grace, that is the subjective vocation. Um, and you know, if you how do I know if I have it? There's no knowing if you have it. There's making a decision to pursue it, asking for the grace to, to be able to, to bring it to fruition. Uh, again, with that, with that single requirement, if that will be perfect. Right. What, what you're saying, what, what you've said in the last episode and what you're saying in this episode, Father, it, it strikes me that it's not a passive thing for someone to say, um, I, I'm waiting for God to show me whether or not I have the calling, the calling, right. capital T and C. Instead, you're saying what the church is actually saying is go out and seek it. Go, go do it. Like it is an active thing that you can do. Don't just wait for it to hit you in the face. Go be it. Go be perfect. Right. And that's, there is, and it's anything in the spiritual life works this way that you have the, you have the two sides, you have God's action and you have our action. But most of the time, you know, God's action is, 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 or he's, he's acting on us all the time. There's not a, it's not a matter of waiting for him to do something before I do something good. I'm going to wait for God to make it absolutely clear that that's what I have to do. Um, you know, in the meantime, what's on TV, you know, um, right. no, it's so, so God is, you know, our Lord says this, he, he just says, come follow me. And it, it, it's out there to, to extend it to everyone. And so we making, make the response. And so, that's, that's, uh, that's how we have to approach it, you know, to wait for the call. Well, what are we waiting for? He already did it 2000 years ago. He called you <laughs> right? and, right. and you know, it's going to come in a certain, there's going to be a grace at different times for people to, to think about it or consider it. But when it's, when it's on your mind, when you, when the idea even, you know, passes through your head, that's already of something of a prompting from God. And we can make a response to that. It doesn't have to be some, you know, intense desire suddenly welling up inside us. It can be, or I want to do the best thing for God. What is that? The religious life. All right, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I think it really, it puts, it puts the onus on the, the candidate rather than on God. God's already doing his part. When we put it, have it the other way, you know, where it's, I have to, I have to discern the will of God. I've got to have a, a strong feeling or a clear sign that this is what God wants from me. 
What do you need a clear sign for? Jesus Christ says, do this. You know, if we, if we, but if yeah. we, if we make it the other way, it sort of puts the responsibility on, on God. All right, God, you have to prove it to me. And he's, he says, no, I've, I've made the invitation. It's up to you to respond or not. And you don't have to respond. It's, it's a council. It's a council, the evangelical councils, uh, it's advice. It's not a command. And that's the other thing that happens is that we, when we have this, you know, you have the special thing that God has decided for you from all eternity and you need to choose it. Otherwise that's really bad. We turn a, a, a council into a command and that's just nonsense. It ceases mm-hmm. to be a council. And, um, like unless you've already made a vow to pursue religious life, it's, it's not of precept for you. It is a free, uh, gift of yourself. And that's what God wants. God wants us, he wants generous souls. He doesn't want the soul that feels, you know, constrained into a blight. I'm doing this because I have to. He wants the soul to say, this is the better way. This is the way I can be most pleasing to God. I'm going to do it. Right. You know, what is the, you know, if you're, you're when you're thinking about getting married, if you just have this sense, well, I, have, I feel as though I have an, a strict obligation to get married to this woman. You know, that's probably not going to make her feel terribly special. So, <laughs> rather than, then it's, then it's uh, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. I have this desire making this choice to give myself to you of, of all the, those to whom I could give myself. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it is with, with God of all the things I could do with my life. I want to choose this thing of, of it, that whereby I give myself as perfectly as possible. Given everything that we've, that you've just said, father, there should be more people entering the religious life. It should not be something that is rare. Uh, like it is today. Yes. And I, right? in, in, um, you know, in the, in the middle ages, you, there were thousands upon thousands of them. I read somewhere once that, you know, on average, every seven miles in France, in the middle ages, there was a, there was a monastery. Um, you know, we had, when I was in the seminary, we had these kind of decorative maps that were hanging on the, uh, on the wall in one of the hallways of, of Western Europe. And they showed different things. And one of them had, um, all the monasteries in Europe, marked on the map with their names, the date of their founding, and it was color coded as to which congregation they belong to and so on. Uh, you know, and there are hundreds of them. There's everywhere. But I, I mean, St. Bernard himself founded more than 40. I mean, he had hundreds of monks in, in the monastery at Clairvaux. Uh, you know, and they were they all sitting at home agonizing over the, do I have a vocation? What if this isn't what God wants? No, they said, this is the best way to give myself to God. I'm going. Um mm. You know, as St. Bernard, when he was going, his, everyone, his friends, his family tried to talk him out of it. And he ended up persuading 30 of them to join him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so he wasn't like, no, right. wait, wait here until you've, you've discerned, got to discern oh, this is the will of God. Like God is, <laughs> this is, this is the best way to save your soul. And, and how many of his companions are considered saints by the church today? You know, they don't regret making that decision. Um, right. So yeah, it, it should be something that's much more common. And I, and as I, I believe I've said before, uh, part of the problem is how much we complicate it, how much we, you know, we need this clear sign or this intense feeling given to us as an extraordinary grace by God to determine to do this thing that God tells us directly is a good idea, is the best way to follow him. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Father, thank you so much for going through all this with us. Um, this, is, this is beautiful, and, and hopefully this helps maybe one more person to seek uh, out the, the religious state. Uh, Even that, would be, it- that would be a win. Even if it's just one, it would certainly be worth it, Andrew. Absolutely. So hopefully it'll be more the than one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll speak to you again next week. Thanks again for your time. My pleasure. God bless you. Right. You too. 
Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the SSPX Podcast. You can find all our previous series and episodes on sspxpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to and rate this podcast on whatever podcast app you use and on YouTube. This helps more people to discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. And if you're able, we'd greatly appreciate your support of a one-time or a monthly recurring donation for these projects. All that information is at sspxpodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for listening and God bless you.